Steve, one of the most entertaining moments was, for me anyway, was the cross-examination of the retired federal and state law enforcement officer, Barry Broad. He's an expert in police training and the use of force. I read an article which described this cross-examination, or rather Barry's Broad's testimony, as an overall disaster for the defence. The article goes on to say the danger in presenting a defence case, especially in a prosecution that is so video-dependent, is that it allows the prosecutor, through leading questions on cross-examination, to walk witnesses through the video explaining to the jury, moment by moment, exactly what the prosecution's theory of the case is. If he does this skillfully, the prosecutor turns his questioning into the equivalent of a summation. Suffice it to say that Steve Slisher did it very skillfully on behalf of the state. Slisher blew Broad's testimony to bits. The conclusion of the article is the objective of a defence case is supposed to be the creation of reasonable doubt, not the removal of all doubt. Now, that's some high praise there. So congratulations. Now, (laughs) what I was interested in is another thing that article said is that you had a field day when you were cross-examining Mr. Broad. Did you have a field day? I did enjoy myself during that examination, I will confess, yes. And how did you prepare it? Because again, so sharp, you didn't give him any leeway whatsoever. So how did you approach preparing this? So for the broad uh, testimony, just like anything else, I learned as much as I could about uh, Mr. Broad. And the advantage we have now, I suppose, with Google and, and being connected as we are, I was able to do quite a bit of research and feel not just to know what he said, but know uh, in the past, but know who he was, uh, what he looked like, what uh, his mannerisms were. I was able to watch a prior cross-examination, direct examination of him in another case. And I did quite a bit of research. I had a couple of partners, uh, Stephanie Laws and David Suchar from my office, helped me put together an examination outline and really focus on what he'd said before that could support my case. We talked about themes earlier in preparing a cross-examination and conducting a cross-examination. You hear about uh, all these things, uh, rules, commandments, uh, whatever you want to call them. I'll call it advice. I think that for me, the prime directive is um, always advance your theme. Whether they call the witness or I call the witness, uh, I want to always advance my theme. And I felt that Mr. Broad, based on who he was and uh, what he had said before, I could use him to advance my theme. I also saw an opportunity there to exploit really a prime weakness of his opinion. You know, we can't even have a conversation if we can't agree on certain terms. If we talk about walking my dog, if I ask you if you want to go uh, walk my dog and you look at my dog and tell me it's a cat, we're going to have a fundamental disagreement and cats are not walkable at all, right? And so we can't even get out the door. And Mr. Broad in his examination tried to define a way. You didn't need to believe your eyes. This wasn't excessive force because it wasn't a use of force at all. And so how was he able to say that, right? He was able to say that by um, looking at a certain provision in the Minneapolis uh, Police Department policies and procedures that say, that a hold 
you know, a simple hold is not technically a use of force if it's not a hold that would cause pain. And so when you think of what then he was saying is that Mr. Floyd wasn't in pain. And there is uh, something that I felt that no reasonable person could look at this, could see this, could feel this and, and agree with them. And so I knew that that was a, a pretty significant area to exploit. And I felt that I'd done enough research uh, with Mr. Broad that I kind of knew where he was going to go. We had the advantage of all of this video, right? You know, uh, it, it was right there. And I think that, you know, contrasting the result in uh, George Floyd's case, as opposed to Rodney King's case, which there was also a video, the theme of that defense was don't believe your eyes. And we knew that. We knew that going in. Believe your eyes. You saw what you saw. <laughs> this is murder. Don't let him talk you out of it. And so in structuring Barry Broad's cross-examination, I had at the ready segments and video clips in which uh, we would be able to go point by point and show the excessive force. And he would have to look at it just as the jury was looking at it and try to tell them that they didn't just see what they saw. And we knew that was going to be difficult for him. And so he then tried to define his way out of the problem. And um, I felt that I could ask him some open-ended questions. I could break some of these commandments. I could break some of these rules. You know, I love that. You can ask an open-ended question of an expert witness if there's no good answer <laughs> to the question. So it's not that I didn't care about the answer. It's not, it wasn't a throwaway. I wasn't trying to warm up. I'm very much um, mindful of the juror's time. But there is no good answer to that question. And so when I asked him, what is it about this that's not compliant? And showing him the, the video, what is it about this that's not compliant? That's when uh, he said, and that's an open question, right? And, and he said, well, a perfectly compliant person would have their arms behind their back, resting in the, in the small of their back and be just resting comfortably. And... Um, I just kind of let that hang out there. And in fact, asked him to repeat it. Did I just hear you say it? Do you really just say that? Resting comfortably. He should be resting comfortably. And in that moment, because I gave him this room to explain himself, which something there's no good explanation, he, uh, he really uh, cross-examined himself, didn't he? Uh, he really impeached his own credibility. He certainly did. And I noticed that instead of easing in and asking some very gentle questions, the way sometimes we do approach witnesses, you went straight in for the attack and started to undermine the fundamental premise that he had ended his direct examination with, which is namely that the defendant's conduct was not a, a use of force because that position's not likely to inflict pain. And I think within, I think it was within 10 minutes he'd conceded that Mr. Floyd had suffered pain at the time. So why did you decide to go straight in for the attack, if you don't mind me using that phrase, instead of easing in? Well, I tried to do it respectfully and, and be respectful. But if we can't uh, even agree that my dog isn't a cat, then we can't go for a walk, right? And so without phase one, and that is, was this a use of force? We can't get to phase two. Was this excessive? He doesn't even have to answer that question. And so... A lot of it was about defining terms. You know, there was a lot of activity that led up to George Floyd being on the ground. And then there were a lot of things that happened after he was taken away. But 
the essence of the case. When we say, was this wrong? What is the this? What is the this? We have to define the this. And so we, we use a couple of shortcuts to get us there. So that we're, let's all talk about the same thing. And so first, I want to put an image in your mind. If you go back and Google this, uh, you can see uh, Google uh, Chauvin trial exhibit 17. Exhibit 17 is the this. That's the excessive force. That is the point at which um, a capture of a still image of the defendant with his knee on George Floyd's neck and his back prone restraint on the ground uh, on top of him. That's the excessive force. So when we talk about what did they do wrong, this is the thing that we're saying did wrong, that they did wrong. Then the other device was the 929. You know, it wasn't just that he was on top of him for a little bit. This wasn't a transitory position, which of course is okay. That's authorized to be on someone like this in a very, very short transitory way to gain control. You can do that. But nine minutes and 29 seconds is preposterous. And so we needed to show him exhibit 17 and talk about the length of time. So once we get to the point where he's conceded, and it was important for him to concede that uh, this was a use of force, now we can go to the next question. Okay, now that we agree that this was a use of force, let's talk about whether or not this use of force was excessive. And so it was important to go there. It was also important, you might notice an interaction that we had where at the beginning, it, may, it might have seemed like a small point, but he really wanted to avoid stating what was plainly true, that the defendant was on top of Mr. Floyd. He wouldn't agree with that proposition. And this is the part about uh, advice for an advocate is you can't be afraid of embarrassing yourself. It's an uncomfortable situation when you're talking to someone and they're kind of gaslighting you and they want to go on to a different thing and they haven't answered your question and you have to go back and they still won't answer it and they still won't answer it. But that was a point I wasn't going to let uh, go away. And I think that that's important because one, it's something pretty easy to see. I mean, it was right there. I had it in the projector right in front of him. There was a still image. I'm circling it. The jury can see it. They know that he knows, right? But he just wouldn't answer it. But I think it's important sometimes to insist on him telling the truth, on answering the question, because that, that's going to set you up. It's a conditioning that's going to set you up for later so that he understands if I ask him a tough question later, you might as well just answer it because I'm not going to stop. I'm going to literally sit there and ask you the same question the same way until either you answer it or, you know, the judge gives me the shepherd's hook and uh, pulls me away. I thought it was important to let's let's just set this now. And I, I'm going to be respectful. I'm not going to holler at you, but you're not going to tell this jury not to believe their eyes, to say that that isn't what we absolutely see it to be. And Mr. Rodwood certainly was evasive at times. Quite often his answers were, it could. Was it painful? Oh, it could be. Was it this? Oh, it could. And we'll play a clip now, a demonstration of how you were able to effectively control this witness. And so looking then at Exhibit 17 and just starting with the fundamental uh, premise of your testimony that what we're seeing here is not a use of force, I need to ask you, if you believe that it is unlikely that orienting yourself on top of a person on the pavement with both legs 
is unlikely to produce pain? It could. What do you mean it could? Is it unlikely to produce pain or is it likely to produce pain? I'm saying it could produce pain. It could? Yes. Uh, and if it could produce pain, then, again, just looking at your premise, if it could produce pain, then it would be a use of force, wouldn't it? If the officer's intent was to inflict pain, that Not would be use of force? Not the officer's intent, sir. What you said is that it was unlikely to produce pain, and that's why it wasn't a use of force. You now just said that it could produce pain. And so, regardless of the officer's intent, if this act that we're looking at here in Exhibit 17 could produce pain, would you agree that what we're seeing here is a use of force? Shown in this picture, that could be a use of force. Okay. For listening to the advocacy podcast journeys to excellence if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources until next time